Our sermon this morning is on Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. We've been working through uh, Genesis for a few months now. Creation, Adam, Eve, Noah, the flood, Tower of Babel, um, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca. Now we're getting to the third generation of the patriarchs, uh, Jacob and Esau. We've got a lot of ground to cover, three chapters. So I'm just going to pray. We're just going to jump right in and just kind of walk, walk through it. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless these next few minutes, Lord. Jesus, as we, as we read your word and study your word and meditate on your word, we ask you, Lord, to, to quiet our hearts, speak to our hearts, speak through me uh, into the hearts of your people. We ask you, Lord, to help us and enable us to hear from you so that we might orient our lives around you and your word and what you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll just jump right in. Uh, Genesis chapter 25. Turn there in your Bible if you have them or follow along on the screen. We're going to start on verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, which is what we saw two weeks ago with Jason, the daughter of Bethuel, the, Ara- the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is suffering from infertility, same way that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was suffering from infertility. They, they respond to it differently. Abraham responded to his wife's infertility by uh, committing adultery, sleeping with Hagar, having uh, a child with her, and then all kinds of drama and dysfunction ensued. Um, Isaac... And Rebecca responded to her infertility by praying to the Lord, being faithful, and the Lord grants their prayer. So that's encouraging. It's like encouraging like progress that we're making with the patriarchs from one generation to the next. But it won't last long. It's all going to fall apart soon enough. And the Lord granted his prayer. Rebecca, his wife, conceived. So God does a miracle. Rebecca becomes pregnant. The children struggled together within her. So she's, she's pregnant. They say children. So we're already kind of getting clues here in the text that, that she's pregnant with twins, with multiple children. The children struggle together. So they're, they're fighting. They're struggling, competing for resources in her womb. They're fighting and jockeying for position. Seemingly both kids want to be the firstborn. That's a position of honor. Rebecca is frustrated. She says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Which is a strange Hebrew phrase. If you look it up in a handful of different translations, you'll probably see the gist of it. But basically what it means is, what, like, why am I, I don't even want to live anymore. If, it, if my life is going to happen like this, if this is going to be what my life is, I don't want to live. I would rather be, be dead. So she says, if, if my pregnancy is going to be this bad, this painful, this unbearable, I don't want to go through it. I would rather just not be, not be alive anymore. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, there are two nations in your womb, and two peoples from within you uh, shall be divided. So, Rebecca, the reason why this pregnancy is so difficult is because you're pregnant with twins. Secondly, it's not just any twins, not just any two kids, but it's specifically two kids who hate each other, and they are gonna they're gonna spend the entire pregnancy in conflict with one another, kind of you know embattled against one another, and then they're gonna spend their entire lives fiercely opposed to one another. 
right? And, and then their descendants are going to kind of grow into two respective nations, and those respective nations are going to contend with one another and be in conflict with one another. And this plays out uh, in the pages of Scripture, exactly like God promises Rebecca that it, it will, right? The descendants of Jacob, Jacob, his name is later changed to Israel. His descendants are the Israelites, Jewish people. And uh, the descendants of Esau are the Edomites. If you Google Edom, E-D-O-M, or the Edomites in the Bible, you'll see it mentioned a bunch of times. Those are the descendants of Esau. There's, and in fact, uh, a, a book of the, the Minor Prophets, the book of Obadiah, is entirely dedicated to the Edomites and to how they oppose the people of God, the Israelites, how they do violence to the people of God, and how the Edomites are going to experience God's judgment because of uh, their opposition to the people of, of God. And all of that, everything that we see in the Old Testament, everything that we see in the book of Obadiah, it all starts here in Genesis 25 in Rebekah's womb. And the older shall serve the younger, and the old, I'm sorry, the old and the... And one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So it's not just that you have twins, you do. It's not just that those twins are going to be in conflict with one another, and in tension with one another. They are. But specifically, the younger twin, Jacob, is going to be the one that uh, that is the, the child of the promise, the child through whom God's promises of redemption are going to, to flow. The older son is going to miss out on the promises of God, and he's going to be subservient to the younger son. Typically, the position of honor goes to the firstborn male. He gets a double portion of the inheritance. He gets the blessing, all of that. God says, with these two, uh, you're going to have two children. The younger is going to be the, in the position of honor. The older is going to serve the younger. This is kind of one of the, I mean, in Romans 9, Paul uh, addresses this exact phenomenon and uses it to argue uh, and to kind of show an illustration of God's sovereignty in, in human uh, salvation, God's sovereignty over human history, right? God is not at the mercy of a, a, a societal norm that's been set up that says the firstborn son gets the place of honor, and now the secondborn son is subservient to him. The firstborn son gets the double portion of the inheritance, and the secondborn son is subservient. God says, "That's I'm glad that you set it up that way. I'm just not bound to do it according to how you're, you're doing it. God is sovereign. Human beings are not sovereign which kind of offends our American sensibilities a little bit because we like to think that, you know, it's the land of the free. It's the, right, like we, I can do whatever, nobody tells me what to do, right? This is a free country. Uh, you know, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And the Bible just doesn't understand human responsibility that way. It doesn't understand humanity that way. It teaches that you have accountability and that you have responsibility to God and to your neighbor and to your church and to, you know, your society. But there's a difference between having responsibility and accountability, which the Bible understands human beings to have, and having autonomy and total freedom to, to dictate terms and to kind of set the course of your life. Where you're, I mean, ultimately, God's sovereignty is over and above any, uh, you know, limited form of autonomy or freedom that he has chosen to give us. We see that starting here in, in uh, Genesis 25. In uh, verse 24, <clears throat> when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first one came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. So Esau is born first. And the name Esau means rough and hairy. So this kid's born, and he's like a woolly mammoth. I mean, he's like hairy already at the time of his birth, and they, say they, call him his, they just name him Hairy Guy, Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand is holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Jacob was born second, and all the way, like, you can see the, the seeds of competition and sibling rivalry, even not, I mean, in their womb when they were kind of bickering in uh, Rebecca's womb, but now even when they're born, Jacob is grabbing Esau's heel as he's, like, he's basically saying, I want to be the firstborn. Daggone it, I missed, you know, he was born first, and I didn't want him to be. The name of J- the name Jacob, so the name Esau means hairy, um, or rough, or hairy, and the name Jacob means uh, it's, it's kind of got a wide semantic range, but uh, grabs by the heel is one thing that Jacob can mean, but also uh, schemer or supplanter or trickster or con man, right? These are kind of all like, you know, J- the name Jacob means I'm grabbing you by the heel because I want to pull you out of the way. I want to take your spot. I want to be where you are. Everything that's yours, I want it to be mine. And I'll, by any means necessary, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trick you. I'm going to con you. I'm going to do anything I can to get what I want from you to get what's rightfully yours and have it be mine. That's all kind of bound up in the name Jacob. So uh, they named Esau, hairy guy. They named Jacob, con man, uh, schemer. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. They live very different childhoods, right? Esau is the, Esau is the man's man. He's big. He's strong. He's growing a beard at age six. He's, you know, he's, you know, he can manhandle all of the other kids, rugged, chiseled, abs, square jaw, right? He loves, loves hunting. He's up at 5 a.m. running stadium stairs, right? Flipping the big tractor tire for his workout. Raw eggs like Rocky, you know, for, that's, that's Esau. He's the man's man. Jacob is an avid indoorsman. He is, Jacob is, he is delicate. He's kind of small, unassuming. He's quiet. He's not very intimidating. He's not very in your face. He's just kind of, you know, kind of chill and he hangs out inside. Right? So Esau drinks the eggs for breakfast. Jacob makes a quiche with the eggs and he serves them to, you know, this, this is the two, this is the two guys. And, and it's not the one's better or one's worse, right? Nothing superior about, you know, Esau being out in nature or inferior about being quiet or being inside. They're both fine. The problem is verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game and Rebecca loved Jacob. The problem is that the parents play favorites. They pick a kid. They, uh, I, I love Esau more than Jacob, Jacob more than Esau. I, this guy reminds me of me, all of the good things about me. I, when I see him, I think of me, and I love myself, so I love this kid more. Or, or yeah, right. this kid reminds me of me, and I hate myself, so I, I, I don't like this kid because he reminds me of all the bad things about me. Whatever, right? This one sleeps better. This one's colicky. You know, what a special treatment because of these kids, and, and it really ends up messing up the the, the story of Jacob and Esau is a cautionary tale against parental favoritism. Like if you have multiple children, love them all the same, right? Encourage them, cherish them, bless them, disciple them, draw near to them equally. Don't play favorites because if you do, it will just leave scars that last their whole life and for, you know, generations to to come. Favoritism is one of the worst things that, that Christians can exhibit. You might think, well, I don't like, you know, I don't do that. I'm, I don't play favorites with my kids, but a lot of us play favorites. Like a lot of us have favoritism and partiality lurking in our hearts. Maybe not with respect to our kids. You know, maybe we 
feed and clothe and shelter and love all of our kids the same, but, you know, we all tend to maybe be more gracious, maybe if it's not with kids, but just with people, coworkers, friends, family. There's someone who really gets on your nerves, and with them, you'll just be set off in an instant, right? No, zero patience, zero grace. The second they say something, you're already annoyed. Or, but if it's your best friend, if it's someone you, you'll bear with them over all, you know, someone who agrees with your politics, you'll overlook, uh, you know, flaws that they might have. Someone who doesn't agree with your politics, maybe uh, you condemn them right away if they do the first thing that's wrong, so you can just, you know, write off, write off everything they say from this point forward, right? Uh, if, if you care about God's justice, then you will repent of the sins of favoritism and partiality. You'll be as lenient and gracious with your enemies as you are with your best friends and your allies. And you'll, you'll be as scandalized and concerned about the sins of your friends and your allies as you are uh, with your, your enemies. Isaac and Rebecca show favoritism. And, and why, why do Isaac and Rebecca show favoritism? Because that's what Isaac's parents did with him. Abraham, uh, his wife was Sarah. And she, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. And so he hatched this scheme to go sleep with his maidservant, got her pregnant. And then now he's got, he's got a wife and a girlfriend, and they both have kids, and there's infighting. And ultimately, Abraham sends Hagar and her son Ishmael away because Sarah hates Hagar. And Sarah hates Ishmael, and Sarah is threatened by them. She thinks that her inheritance is going to be diluted. She thinks that her son's inheritance is going to be diluted by these other kids, which was ultimately her idea in the first place. So she says, right, Abraham, I'm the favorite woman. Isaac is the favorite child. Get them out of here. I want them gone. And Abraham and Sarah exhibit favoritism. That's all Isaac knows. So that's what he does. When he, when he grows up, he saw his dad show favoritism, so he shows favoritism. I like Esau. I like that he's big and strong. I like that he's a tough guy. I like that he's going to be the captain of the football team. He's my favorite son. And the point is this. The point is that sin has a generational multiplicative effect to it, right? Sin that goes unaddressed in the lives of, uh, of a parent if you don't repent of it, if you don't confess it, if you don't make it clear that it's wrong publicly, if you don't come to your kids and be humble in front of them and tell them that what you did is wrong, they aren't going to have any category for parents repenting, and they're not going to have any category for that specific sin and behavior to be wrong. If you abuse alcohol and drugs, and that's what your kids see, they're more likely to abuse alcohol and drugs. If you're violent, hit your spouse, abuse your kids, they're more likely to do that when they grow up. If you cheat on your spouse and divorce them, trade them in for a, a, a newer model, your kids will be more likely to do that. If you have a short temper, your kids will be more likely to develop a short temper. That's how, that's how sin works. It, it spreads and kind of gets its hooks in, gets its tentacles in, and if you don't repent of it, and if you don't address it, and if you don't confront it, it grows like a, like a cancer throughout your generation. So if you want your kids to learn from your mistakes instead of repeating them, and if you want them to avoid some of the pitfalls that you've fallen into instead of suffering the consequences of them like you are, then you have to repent of those sins, specifically to them. 
right? You don't just like resolve quietly in your heart that I'm not going to have a short temper anymore. You go to your kids and you say, I'm sorry for sinning against you by losing my temper with you. It's going to give them categories for how to repent of sin as they grow up. Isaac never does that. Isaac shows favoritism with Esau. Rebecca shows favoritism to Jacob. And it kind of and, and it, and it engenders in them this like bitter, fierce rivalry that starts from infancy and gets worse. They hate each other. They're constantly trying to get the upper hand. They're constantly competing for the attention and the affection of the parent that's ignoring them and that's despising them. They're constantly bragging and kind of, you know, walking with a swagger because of the attention and the affection that their particular parent gives to them. Right? They never enjoy one another as brothers because they're always in conflict with one another as competitors and as adversaries. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So typical day in Isaac's household. Esau's outside killing wild animals covered in blood. Jacob's inside watching HGTV cooking. Esau comes in, he says, let me eat some of that red, suit, red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So Esau means hairy guy. That's his name, his formal name. But he has a nickname, which is Edom, which means red. Uh, presumably for one of two things, either because his hair is red, he's, a red, he's got red hair all over his body, or because he just likes red meat. He likes to eat red meat. Red, give me some of that. My name's Red. You've been cooking red meat, which is exactly what I like. Give it here. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. Hand it over. Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright right now. Right? So, so if, if Esau's name means hairy guy, red guy, red meat, I want that food right now. Uh, Jacob's name means schemer, con man, supplanter, the usurper, right? The taker of that which is not his. And so he's thinking, I, I have, like, I have the upper hand now. Supply and demand. Right? Urgency begets profit. So I'm going to tell Esau, my brother, that I'll give him meat if he gives me his birthright, which means, which means a double portion of the inheritance. Right? If the father has $100,000, firstborn son gets 66K, secondborn son gets 33K. If he has five kids, then, you know, uh, I don't know how to do the math because it's six. If he has four kids, let's do it that way. Uh, then the firstborn son gets 40, and then the rest of them all get 20. So, um, so he says, I will give you this, you know, meal, this bowl of soup that I've been making. If you give me your birthright, which is not a fair trade, but Esau, I mean, Esau's a little, a little dramatic, right? Um, he says, I, what good is, what good is my birthright to me? Uh, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me? I'm not sure he's about to die. You know, he's just, he's just a teenager who's been outside. He's hungry. And, and Jacob is kind of being a little opportunistic. He says, swear to me right now, right? I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. I'll give you this food if you give me right. Esau sees meat. He sees his next meal. He sees the gratification of an appetite, of an impulse, and he doesn't care. Any, like, he doesn't see past to today. He doesn't see past the next meal. He doesn't see past the next five minutes, right? If he's thinking long-term, he's thinking, all right, this is, a, this is hundreds of thousands, this is millions of dollars worth of inheritance, nest eggs, start a business, provide for my family, right? You know, uh, make it last generations into the future. If he's thinking long-term, he realizes this is a bad deal. He's thinking short-term. 
That's why it says that Esau despised his birthright. He couldn't care less because the birthright is linked to the promises of God and the redemption of God, right? You get this double portion of the inheritance and you get this blessing from God so that your descendants can become a nation through whom God is going to bless the world by bringing the Messiah into the world through them. Esau says, "That's I don't care about that. I don't care about being the patriarch through whom Jesus is eventually born because I don't believe in God. I don't love God. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Esau is a godless, wicked man. All he cares about, short-term, stomach, appetites, doesn't care about God, God's covenant, God's redemption, God's Messiah, doesn't care about any of that. Swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. I don't want this anyway. It's, it's uh, you know, I couldn't care less. It's numbers on a screen, doesn't matter to me. What I want is the food that's in front of me right now. In Genesis chapter 26, we, we're, we don't have this on the slides, but I'll just kind of give you a quick overview of it. God comes to Isaac. He reiterates the same promises from Abraham, uh, reiterates the same promises to Isaac that he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and following. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I'll give you offspring. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless the world through that nation. Then later in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac, we can, we can see again the, the generational effects of sin because Isaac does the exact same stupid thing that Abraham did, which is he goes uh, in, up to Abimelech and he says, this is my sister, even though it's his wife. And then someone, you know, one of, one of Abimelech's servants are kind of peeping over the privacy fence and they see, you know, Isaac and Rebecca, you know, being intimate. And, and he, they say, I'm pretty sure that's not, they're not sisters. And so it's a whole, it's a whole thing, just like it was with Abraham, which happened multiple times. Now it's happening with Isaac because the son inherits the sins of the father unless they repent and confront it and address it. And then we get to chapter 27, back with uh, Jacob and Esau being the, the key players. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so he's going blind, so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older brother, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat and that my soul may bless you before I die. Which is the opposite of what God told Isaac to do. The younger is going to serve, the, the older is going to serve the younger. The younger is going to be the place of honor. The younger is going to be the one through whom the blessing and the line of redemption is going to go. If you're going to bless anyone, Isaac, then you should obey God and you should bless Jacob instead of Esau. He says, I'm going to hatch a scheme to bless Esau instead of Jacob. I'm specifically going to do it in secret. Jacob's nowhere around and Rebecca, who happens to favor Jacob, is nowhere around. So let's kind of do this uh, this little uh, plan here. But verse 5, but Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So Rebekah is in the next room over. She's got a cup to the door, right? She's, 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 Rebecca is what Paul calls a busybody, right? She is listening in. She wants to know all the gossip, everything that's happening. She wants to stick her nose into everything that everyone else is doing. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it in, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. 
So bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. So Rebecca says to Jacob, my husband, your father, is trying to pull a fast one here. He knows that God says he's supposed to bless you, but he's going to try to bless Esau instead of you. So she says, now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. So Jacob is 40, at least 40 years old at this point. In chapter 26, Esau got married. It said he was 40 years old when he got married. So Jacob is at least 40, maybe mid-40s, maybe pushing 50. And she's treating him like a child, right? Do, do as I say, little boy. Do as I say, little little child. Go, uh, go to the flock. Bring me two young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father such as he loves, and you shall bring it to his father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Verse 11, but Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing, right? This plan is not as foolproof as you think it is. My voice doesn't sound like Esau's. My skin doesn't feel like Esau's. We're, we're kind of putting all the eggs in one basket of the fact that dad is blind and it might not work. She says, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. She tells Jacob to obey her voice over and over and over. There's a difference between a parent telling a six-year-old to obey me, don't touch the stove, don't play in traffic, and a grown and an elderly woman telling her grown man of a son to obey me, especially when the obedience that she is insisting on is sin and deceit. When you grow when you grow up and you're a man, you obey God. You honor your mother and your father even when they get older, even though you're an adult and they're, they're you know, you still honor them, love them, care for them, listen to their counsel, but you obey God. Instead of uh, you know, your your parents who may or may not be calling for obedience, especially if it's uh, you know, if they're calling you to, to sin. Verse 14, so he went and he took them and he brought them to his mother and she prepared delicious food such as his father loved. 15, then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in her house and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. She's dressing him. Uh, and the, the skins of the young goats she put on his hands, the smooth part of his neck. She put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son, Jacob. Verse 18, so he went into his father and he said, my father, and he says, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. He's lying. It's deceit. And it's just an out and out lie. Verse 20, Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? That seemed fast. You had to go outside. You had to find an animal. You had to track it. You had to hunt it. You had to corner it. You had to kill it. You had to field dress. You had to bring it inside. You had to cook it. You had to prepare it into a meal. That all happened a little bit too quickly. And uh, Jacob's answer, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. So now he's bringing God into it. Now he's like inviting God into his deceit and his treachery and his, you know, uh, yeah, just, just conniving and scheming. Right, if, you, if you rob a bank... And then you use the money that you steal to buy a fancy new car. And someone says, wow, nice car. Where'd you get it? You shouldn't say, the Lord has just really blessed me. And I, it's been a good year, right? I, I hit my, I hit all my numbers and I got a nice bonus. And this is right. You, you, the, the, this, 
This is not the blessing of the Lord. This is your sin and your deceit and your disobedience. Verse 21, then Isaac says to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you to know whether or not you are really my son Esau. Isaac's on to it, right? Something's not right here. This all happened a little bit too quickly. The voice sounds a little bit weird. He's claiming to be Esau. I can't really see and verify, but I'm not sure. Let me, let me feel him. Verse 22, Jacob went near to Isaac, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice. Strange. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. So the con appears to have worked. Verse 24, are you really my son Esau? Yes, I am. Lie on top of lie on top of lie, right? The web is getting bigger and bigger, more lies. He's appealing to God to cover up his lies using spiritual language. He says, bring it here to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he, Isaac, ate and he brought him wine and Isaac drank. Verse 26, then his father Isaac said to him, Come here and kiss me, my son. So he came near and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And he said, see, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and plenty of wine. Let the people serve you and the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Right? This is, this is the most that Isaac has interacted with Jacob probably his entire life. The language like that, the verbose, flowery, beautiful language was reserved for Esau because he was the favorite son, right? Esau got, you know, Isaac would, would get home from work, walk right past Jacob who's playing with toys inside, ignore him, go grab a ball, go outside and play with Esau. That was, that was Jacob's whole childhood. And he had a father wound because of it. And now for the first time in his life, he's hearing his father speak with affection and give him attention. And the only reason he's doing it is through the guise of pretending to be Esau. Dad of the earth, grain and wine, brothers bowing down. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father, Esau brought his brother, or Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he also prepared delicious food, and he brought it to his father. And he said, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. No idea this has happened, right? Esau, like, it's like Jacob walks right out one door, Esau walks right in the other door, one after the other. And Isaac says, who are you? He says, duh, I'm your firstborn son. Like, uh, you just sent me to go out into the field, hunt, you know, kill an animal, make, make some food, bring it to you. I did that. I'm, uh, what, what are you talking about? Verse 33, then Isaac trembled very violently, and he said, who was it that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I blessed him? Yes, he is the one that shall be blessed. Isaac has a little, Isaac is panicking. Isaac has a little bit of a panic attack here. He's shaking violently because he realizes that he has been found out, right? He was under the impression that he and Esau were going to have this secret little arrangement made behind closed doors. And, and, you know, Rebecca was going to know nothing of it. Jacob was going to know nothing of it. And now he realizes, man, I am 
busted. A, A, not only did the blessing that I wanted to give to Esau go to Jacob instead, but B, I have been exposed. My wife knows I was trying to deceive her. My son knows that I was trying to, to do that. He starts to, his blood pressure goes up. He's panicking. He's realizing that he has now been exposed. Verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Father, bless me also. Isaac is trembling. Esau is crying and sobbing. Verse 35, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. So Isaac is now pointing, right? Forget about the fact that I was practicing deceit myself, trying to pull a fast one. Your brother is the one who practiced deceit. He has taken away your blessing. This is, this is what happens when you sin and then you get caught is that you have a panic attack. You start sweating. Your blood pressure goes up. You start shaking and then you start blaming anyone else. Right? I didn't, yeah, I took that stuff from, you know, come into my office, right? We, we saw you stealing office supplies. Yeah, but that's because you, I, I worked too long of hours and didn't get paid enough. I was just, you know, taking what was mine, right? You cheated on your spouse. Well, her fault. She was high maintenance. She, you know, was difficult to, I had no choice, right? You sin, you get caught, you get exposed, you freak out, you panic, and you start blaming other people. Or you do what Esau does in the very next verse, which is that you play the victim. Esau said, is it not right? Is he not rightly named Jacob, supplanter, usurper, con man, schemer, right? He's cheated me now twice. He took away my birthright and behold, he has taken away my blessing. I'm the innocent victim here. Jacob is the aggressor. He's the one with all the power. He has hurt me. I am the marginalized victim. Really, Esau? That's a little bit of revisionist history. Right? You, Jacob didn't cheat Esau out of his birthright. Esau despised his birthright and gave, Esau decided that he would rather have a bowl of soup than he would rather have, you know, a third of his father's estate. And he, it's not, you didn't get, deceived Esau, you, you were stupid. You, right. You, you got beat like you and Jacob were competing and trying to take advantage of the other. And and he just was better at it than you were. You got, you got take, he played the game better than you did and took advantage of you. So you're not an innocent victim here. You were sinning. Again, uh, the author of Hebrews says that, that Esau is immoral. He's unholy. He's godless, and now he wants to be the victim, and he wants everyone to to pity him and to show him sympathy because he is an innocent victim. Then he says, Father, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Verse 37, Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him, Jacob, lord over you, Esau. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. With grain and wine I have sustained them. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said this to his father. Have you but one blessing, father? Bless me also, right? Don't let Jacob get away. He already took uh, my nest egg, right? He already took the lump sum that I had coming to me. And now he's trying to take the residual, like the passive income that comes in the form of a blessing at the end of your life. And so, so they're, they're emotional, they're mad, they're sad. 
Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. And then Isaac, verse 39, Isaac said to his father, or then Isaac, his father answered him and said, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, the opposite of Jacob's. Away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother until you grow restless and then you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Isaac hates giving this blessing because he wishes that he wishes that he could have given Esau the blessing that he gave to Jacob. Esau hates receiving this blessing. It sounds, it feels more like a curse than it does a blessing. You're going to get leftovers. You're going to have to scrap and fight and claw for everything that you're ever going to get your entire life. Nothing's going to come easily for you. Your brother's going to dominate you until you eventually cast cast him away. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing that his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning my father are approaching. My dad's about to die. And then after he dies, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. So this is how, this is how sin, this is how godless people handle sin in their lives, right? They cultivate it. They gratify themselves with it. Then when they get exposed, they freak out, they panic, they point the finger at others, they blame shift. It's your fault, not mine. They play the victim. I can't believe you would do that to me. Pity me. Give me sympathy. And then they, they hold a grudge and they nurse. They just kind of hold on to it forever. Harboring bitterness and hatred, plotting revenge, plotting murder. This can all, all of this, all of this tension and drama and, and murderous plots can all be traced back to what at the time seemed like a fairly innocuous sin. Right? Esau hates his brother, wants to murder him because Jacob conned him and took advantage of him. Why that happened? Because they had this intense sibling rivalry. They were always competing and fighting, trying to get the better of each other. Why did that happen? Because their parents uh, didn't love them properly. They picked favorites. They doted on one child and ignored and despised the other one. Why did that happen? Because Abraham and Sarah, that's what they did. That's what they thought normal parenting was. Why did all of that happen? Because Abraham didn't trust in the promises of God. When God said you're going to have uh, children, you're going to have offspring, a great nation is going to come out of them. Abraham didn't trust God, so he went and slept with another woman. Abraham's failure to trust God and his insistence on taking matters into his own hands, which probably felt like a good idea at the time. It felt expedient. It felt clever. Ultimately gives way to partiality, favoritism, resentment, jealousy, rivalry, deception, scheming, theft, hatred, violence, murder. And then it drastically altered the course of human history. Israelites and Edomites for centuries are contending with one another. Jews and Palestinians for millennia are contending with one another. Sin starts small, then it worms its way in. It seems harmless, but it's insidious, and it grows, and it spreads poison, and it gets passed down through generations, and your kids start to sin more and more, and then before you know it, there's untold suffering and unrest for millions of people that can be traced back to these sins right here. The point of the story is sin is nothing to met. Sin will kill you. You need to be ruthless with your sin. You need to kill your sin before your sin kills you. 
You need to confess it. You need to bring it out into the open. You need to repent of it. You need to invite the counsel and accountability of your church and of of people that you trust. You need to kill sin in your life and in your heart before it kills you. You need to gather people that you know and trust around you. You need to confess your sin to them. You need to ask for them to pray for you and to help you overcome it. You need to get out in front of your sin and kill it, lest it kill you. Verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So again, Rebekah just kind of, everything comes back to her. She's either listening herself or she's got ears that she sends people out. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away, and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and I will bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Here's Rebecca's idea. Why don't you run away? Right, You stole millions of dollars in lump sums and deferred payments from your brother. Run away. Wait till this all blows over. He'll forget about it. And specifically, go to Laban's house. Hide there until the dust settles. I mean, if, if Jacob has been running circles around Esau and Isaac as a schemer, right? If, if he's, you know, he's going to meet Laban and it's like, welcome to the NFL, right? Like, you might have been good in high school and college, but like, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what a real schemer does. I'm going to, I'm going to lay you out. Rookie. So Jacob goes and meets. We're going to do that next week. We're going to, we're going to see Jacob uh, and Laban and the, the story there. But the two big takeaways from Genesis 25 to 27, looking at how Abraham or how Isaac and Rebekah interact with Jacob and Esau, one we just covered, the sinfulness of sin, selfishness, scheming, favoritism, manipulating, trying to get your way. Instead of, instead of submitting to the will of God, instead of listening to the wise counsel of others, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to, I'm going to get my way. I'm going to take advantage of people. Sin will kill you. Satan wants to use your sin to destroy you. The most dangerous thing in your life right now is not global warming. It's not Overpopulation, it's not littering, it's not big tech censorship, it's not liberal media elites. The biggest, the biggest, it's not the biggest problem in your life, the biggest hazard, the biggest liability, the most dangerous thing in your life right now is sin. And it's your sin. It's not someone else's sin, it's yours. You need to repent of your sin, turn from it. Trust in Jesus to forgive you of it, confess it, and then walk in repentance and in community with others. That is your only hope to be protected and to be saved from the most dangerous, lethal, deadly thing in your life. The sinfulness of sin is a, is prominently on display in this story, and so is the faithfulness of God. Think about it. 
How crazy is it that this family, these people, are the people that God chose to work through, the people that God actively chose to bring his Savior into the world through their nation? But I mean, everyone's trying to get their spouse to sleep with someone else. They're sleeping with other people. Their kids hate each other. Everyone's holding grudges. This is a drama, dysfunction, running rampant. And God... God would be well within his rights to abandon ship. These, right? I might have promised not to destroy the world by a flood, but I'm not going to use these jerks and idiots to be the, the, the family through whom my Messiah comes into the world. God could have said that. If I were God, I probably would have said that. But God is faithful to his covenant. He takes this broken, sinful family Generation after generation after generation forgives their sin. He's patient with them. He keeps his promises to them. I will make you into a great nation. I will raise up your offspring. I will reconcile you to myself. I will raise up a prophet like Moses. I will raise up a king like David. I will raise up a suffering servant. Thousands of years, promises made, promises kept, covenants made, covenants kept. And then Jesus is born. And Jesus lives the perfect, sinless life that God has been calling his people to live. Jesus loves God. He loves his neighbor. He loves his enemies. And then Jesus gives his life for them. He is stricken and smitten and afflicted. He's nailed to a cross. And the wrath of God that's been stored up for thousands of years. The wrath of God that was incited by Abraham's adultery and by Isaac's favoritism and Jacob's deceit and Esau's hatred and your sin and my sin. The wrath of God that is rightfully yours was poured out on Jesus. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop. And as he does, Jesus invites sinners to come to him, to trust in him, to hide in him, to to let the wrath of God fall on him instead of on them, right? Jesus will take your wrath and all that is left for you is mercy, right? Grace from God, compassion from God, kindness from God. Forgiveness from God. Salvation from God. For all eternity. Jesus is inviting each of us this morning, and he's inviting us collectively as a church to turn from our sin and to trust in him so that we might be reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful to your covenant, that you made promises and you kept those promises through Christ. We thank you for sending Jesus to us. Lord, we ask you to give us grace. Grace to repent of our sin. Grace to kill our sin. Grace to trust in you grace to love you, and grace to love our neighbor as you have called us to. It's in Christ's name that we pray.
Amen.